Father, you are unsurpassed in your beauty. You are unmatched in your wisdom. You are unrivaled in your power. You are incorruptible in your goodness. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And today we gather to behold your glory in the face of Christ. You are the majestic one. Jesus died on a cross with our names on it so that we could be reconciled into right relationship with you. And three days later, he rose again so that we could be justified and give us the hope and confidence and a preview of the hope that we look forward to on the day when he returns and we are given bodies without expiration dates. And the transcendent architect of the universe makes the whole world new and us with it. It is that hope that anchors us amidst the storms and the sufferings and the trials and the difficulties of life. So God, I just pray that your spirit would be here among us today, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would comfort us, and that you would inspire us to contribute to the advancement and the enjoyment of your kingdom in our homes, in our cities, in our state, and around the country. Lord, we do pray for spiritual revival that would lead to societal reformation. We ask you for this in the precious and powerful and mighty name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As many of you know, in the Bible, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, as God's building. Well, today what I would like for us to do is ask and answer the question, what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? We'll look at a number of texts, but let's start by looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. I actually don't have the number for you in your Bible in the pews, but if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, which reads, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are the literal physical body of Jesus that died on the cross and three days later rose from the dead. It's a metaphor. Like if I were to say, it's a zoo in here, I wouldn't be saying that there are actual animals running around. I'd be saying that it's wild. Or if I were to say to you, I'm a night owl, I wouldn't be saying that I'm an actual owl. I would be communicating to you that I stay up late, right? Similarly, when Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, he's using a metaphor to define the church as the people who are three things. Under the authority of Christ, animated by the Spirit of Christ, and the diverse interdependent instruments through which Jesus achieves his redemptive purposes in the world. So one more time, Paul is using a metaphor to define the church as the people who are three things, under the authority of Christ, animated by the Spirit of Christ, and the diverse interdependent instruments through which Jesus achieves his purposes in the world. So first, the church is made up of those who are under the authority of Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, it says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. We are parts of the same body, therefore, because we have the same head. In the ancient world, much like the modern world, the head was considered to be the thing that governed or controlled the body. So, for instance, we might say of someone who's out of control that they're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. The head is the control tower of the body. So when Paul says that Jesus is our head, he means that Jesus is our shared authority. He's the one who's in charge of our lives. And that's actually the primary application of this first point. 
is that Jesus is not just in charge of one part of our lives. Jesus is in charge of every part of our lives. To illustrate this, let me ask you a question. If you were to get pulled over later today by a police officer, and that police officer asked you to slow down, what would you say? Or what should you say? Yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. Now, if that same police officer knocked on your door at 6 o'clock tonight and started telling you what chores to do, what you were going to cook for dinner, and what time you were going to go to bed, what might you say to him or her? Well, you can't tell me what to do here, at least not with respect to dishes and chores and bedtimes and meals, right? Well, brothers and sisters, there is no place on planet Earth where we can say something along those lines to Jesus. Jesus is in charge everywhere and over everything. His jurisdiction, unlike a police officer, is not limited. His jurisdiction extends out the doors of this church over the whole of creation and every part of our lives. Jesus is Lord of the boardroom and the bedroom and the breakfast table and the billiard hall and the voting booth. Jesus is Lord of everything and every part of our lives. As John Frame points out in the Old Testament, God's law regulated not only Israel's worship, but also the diet, political life, sex life, economic life, family life, travel, and calendar of his people. So we're not just accountable to Jesus in how we spend our Sunday mornings. We're accountable to Jesus in how we treat our spouse and siblings. We're accountable to Jesus in how we work and how we play. We're accountable to Jesus in how we spend our money and how we vote. We're accountable to Jesus even in how we think. So in short, Jesus being our head means that we should obey Jesus everywhere and in everything. I became a believer about 17 years ago. I had moved to New York City as a thoroughgoing pagan, worshiping myself and the self-indulgences of the world. And a group of men reached out to me. They befriended me. They shared both the gospel and their lives with me consistently, month after month after month. And what I often say is that watching them was like hearing life spoken in its original language for the first time. It was beautiful, but I couldn't speak it. But somehow their faith shaped and colored and flavored everything that they did, from the way that they worked, to the way that they spent their money, to the way they consumed food and alcohol, to the way they did friendship, to the way that they dated. And eventually, the message that they were sharing with me about Jesus got a hold of my heart. One night after a long night out, I had been caught up in the New York uh, nightlife scene. I was working in the fashion industry. But one morning, I finally came to the end of myself. And I crawled into my living room and I cried out to God. And essentially I said, God, as a younger man, I've tried being good. And now as an older man, I've tried being rebellious. And both ways of life have left me empty. Clearly something deeper than my behavior is wrong. Something's wrong with my heart. And I can't change that. So God, if you're there and you're real and what they're telling me about the death and resurrection of Jesus is true, you can have me, but you're going to have to change me. And the Spirit of God showed up in my living room in Queens, New York, and transformed the condition of my heart. And I got off of my living room floor a different man, forgiven by the blood of Christ and cleansed by the living water. But if you've ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you know uh, the senior devil says to the junior devil about the patient and talking to God as the enemy, he says, you know, now that this, the patient has become converted, the enemy, speaking of God, has his heart, but we still have his habits. God has his heart, but we still have his habits. Sanctification takes time, amen? 
Doesn't happen overnight. Some things, some of my desires were immediately changed, but that didn't mean some of my behaviors immediately changed. And so it took time for the Lordship of Christ to work its way into every avenue of my life. And so I'm just gonna give you a quick example. I told you I was working in the fashion industry. I was also at acting school in New York City. And uh, I went with a group of friends uh, to Chipotle to eat. And some of these people that went with me knew that I was a part of a ministry. That ministry that led me to the Lord uh, was a ministry for people in the fashion industry. And I was now helping run it. So we go to eat and I say, hey, can I say a blessing? So I say a blessing, then we have lunch. Afterwards, me and a buddy went to work out and go rock climbing. But when we got there, he sat me down. He said, John, I need to talk to you. Had kind of a serious tone. I'm like, oh, great. Like, what, you know, what's this about? And he says, you know, you prayed for the meal, right? I said, yeah, prayed for the meal. He said, do you know what you said five seconds later? I said, no. He said, you used a number of choice expletives, and there was an 11-year-old at the next table. He said, you have no business running a ministry and talking like that. So instead of getting defensive, I said, you know, you're right. And I said, I'm sorry. That's not how Christians should talk. It took time for Christ to become Lord of my speech. So I would just implore you this morning, if there's any aspect or area of your life, from your pocketbook to your marriage, to your imagination, if there's any area of your life that you haven't surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and you're not ordering according to his will, please do so this morning. Give it to him because joy is on the far side of obedience. And we cannot have, we cannot have two heads. We cannot serve two masters. But as you know, as we all know, it's hard to obey Jesus. In fact, it's impossible to obey Jesus without something specific, the Holy Spirit and his energizing power. And that's why the second point is so critically important, is that the church is made up of those who are animated by the Spirit of Christ and their children. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. So we are parts of the same body because we are part of a community animated by the same spirit. Like humans have a body and a spirit, Paul is saying that we are the body of Christ because we possess the spirit of Christ. As I just mentioned, if you are a believer in Jesus, the Spirit of God has entered and transformed the condition of your heart. That's how you become a communing member of the church. Jesus puts his Spirit in you, and you put your faith in Jesus. Now, why do you think Paul emphasizes so strongly that we are one body indwelled by the same Spirit? I want you to imagine that you're in a room with a group of people, and one person is your same gender, one person is your same ethnicity, one person is interested in the same hobbies as you, and one person is a different gender, a different ethnicity, is interested in different hobbies than you, but is also a Christian. Who in that room do you have the most significant thing in common with? The Christian, right? I mean, the blood of Jesus runs deeper than the blood of biology. Paul is saying, that your faith in Jesus is the most important thing about you. Your faith in Jesus is your primary identity marker. So the application, or at least one of the applications here would be that our primary community, our most intimate community and friendship groups should be other believers. It should be the church. And why is that? Because we are parts of the same body and there is no more intimate or significant connection than that. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't have unbelieving friends? 
No, of course not. Jesus was eating with and spending time with unbelievers all the time. How else would we share the gospel with people? As Jillian reminded me on the way over here, we just spent all day yesterday with all of my old high school buddies, none of which have come to the Lord, which is one of my primary motivations for ministry. Although my buddy's uh, brother and sister-in-law have come to the Lord, and we had great conversation with them, but we still get a quarterly steak night dinner together. And my motivation for being there is that we are as close as family, and I love them very much, but they're not my primary day-to-day -day community. They're not my most intimate fellowship. Why? Because we are mutually responsible for one another as the body of Christ, and my innermost circle should be other believers. And so just to illustrate this a little bit, I had a counseling conversation with a seventh grader last week. I took him to Chick-fil-A. His mom had asked me to reach out and spend some time with him. And he had been devastated because of his group of friends at school where they have like a, a text chain that they're all on, a group text thread. They had kicked him out of the group. And he was crying and upset with his mom and all the rejection of all that. I was really, I'm going to chase a rabbit, tell you more of the story than I intended to. But he, I was so proud of when I learned the way that he responded. So he went home, he processed it with his mom, he prayed to forgive this student. And then he went to him and actually just said to him, hey, whatever his name was, I forgive you, but I'd really just like to know why you kicked me out of the group. And the kid said he thought it would be funny. To which he responded, well, I didn't think it was funny, but I do forgive you and we can put every, we can, everything can be water under the bridge if you just add me back. And he did, and that's great. And I want him to continue to be friends with them, but I did ask him the question, are any of the guys in that group believers? And the answer was no. And so I had to tell him my own experience after I became a Christian, I felt very isolated and alone in what had been my closest group of friends because they couldn't go there with me. I was going to unbelievers looking for fellowship and you can't have fellowship without the spirit. And so you will be, I had to share this, with them, I want you to stay friends with them, but you're going to have your feelings hurt more than you think and you're going to be disappointed if you don't, I'd encourage you to lean in to your friendships that we have in a middle school boys discipleship group. And it's not that they're not gonna hurt your feelings, but they are gonna be able to fellowship with you. And they probably will be more likely to apologize. So just keep that in mind. Our primary group of friends should be other believers. Okay, let me give you one more reason Paul emphasizes so strongly that we are indwelled by the same spirit. In the ancient world, in particular in the city of Corinth, people were obsessed with status obsessed with stuff. They were constantly comparing themselves to one another and trying to one-up each other. Good thing we've moved past that, right? We don't do that in our culture. So in the Roman society, your social status was determined by things like your ethnicity, your gender, whether you were a slave or not, the size of your bank account. And there were a number of Christians in Corinth who were trying to claim that the Roman social ladder carried over into the church. Basically, they were saying that the social elite received a superior version of the Holy Spirit. As if the Holy Spirit came with a premium subscription for special people. And Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. Every believer is equal in their possession of the Spirit and they're standing before God, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic class. And why is that? Because grace, not family pedigree or the size of your bank account, is the reason that any of us become a member of this body. So another application here would be that we shouldn't act superior 
to any of our brothers and sisters in Christ because we are all saved by grace. There are no second-class Christians. Brothers and sisters, elitism in the church is antithetical to the gospel. And if there's any area in our own hearts, whether it's superior theological knowledge in some camps, typically ours, or the manifestation of the Spirit, maybe, in charismatic groups, whatever it is that is your thing, and if you feel a superiority to your other brothers and sisters in Christ, we all need to repent of that. Finally, the church is made up of the diverse, interdependent instruments through which Jesus achieves his purposes in the world. In Romans 12, 4 through 6, Paul writes, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So we are parts of the same body because we are mutually dependent on one another's functions, on the functioning of one another's gifts. As Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Simply put, Paul is saying that we need each other. We need to show appreciation for every Christian's gifts. From the Christian pastor to the Christian janitor, every Christian that utilizes their gifts for the glory of God and the good of their neighbor is deserving of our respect and appreciation. Have you ever thought about how important the work of a janitor is? Anybody ever thought about that? Listen to what Jim Mullins writes about the work of a janitor. In each room, especially places like bathrooms, there are viruses and bacteria that could greatly harm us, even kill us. When janitors pull the trigger on a spray bottle of bleach, they are embarking on chemical warfare against the germs that would make us sick and take our lives. By keeping us from getting sick, janitors serve us all. The work of a janitor is invaluable. Kids in the back, think about that next time your parents ask you to clean your toilets or your bathrooms. Now, what would make the service of a janitor a spiritual gift? What would make the, the service of a janitor a spiritual gift? Remember, Paul is talking about how each part of the body has a gift that has been given for the common good. Typically, when we start talking about spiritual gifts, the tendency, regardless of what church you're in, is to think about the upfront gifts, like preaching and teaching, or to think about the miraculous gifts, the gifts of healing and prophecy and speaking tongues, all the controversy and debates over that. But interestingly, as one scholar points out, many of the gifts on Paul's list could be considered God-given natural abilities that are enhanced by the Spirit and dedicated to the service of Christ. So your spiritual gift can be given to you, or your, the gift can be given to you when you're born or when you become a believer. The thing that makes it a spiritual gift is that it's empowered by the Spirit and dedicated to the service of Christ. So for instance, what would make, oh, where are we? What would make the gift of a janitor or an artist or a teacher a spiritual gift is not that these gifts are necessarily supernatural, but that the janitor, artist, or teacher is empowered by the Spirit to use their gifts, again, for the glory of God and the good of their neighbor. All that to say, everybody in this room, every single one of you 
has a gift, has a spiritual gift. Unlike the movie Encanto, every member of God's family gets a gift. And God is calling you to use that gift to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. As Peter writes, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You've probably heard people say that we are the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, that's true. That's actually Paul's point here. We are the means through which Jesus often carries out his purposes in the world. Jesus feeds us through the farmer. He heals us through the doctor. He educates us through the teacher. He evangelizes us through the evangelist. So whatever gifts you have, use them to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mentioned a minute ago that my salvation came about through a man that was faithful enough, a group of men that were faithful enough to come alongside me and share the gospel with me. They shared the gospel and their lives with me. Well, as a quick another story, just to illustrate this a little bit, God also healed me, not supernaturally, but providentially working through natural means. I weigh 182 pounds right now. In 2017, I was on a business trip in Boston and noticed that I had started to lose the ability to walk. I had been chronically ill for over a decade, and no one could figure it out. We had gone from hospital to hospital to doctor to doctor to specialist to specialist. And I got home, and I went into an all-company meeting. I had been working at home. They hadn't seen me, and everybody looked at me like they had seen a ghost. They, unbeknownst to me, called my family in a panic. They came and got me, rushed me to the hospital. I had dropped down to 108 pounds. As a gainfully employed and apparently well-fed American, I was dying of starvation. And the hospital dropped the ball. They sent me home. My doctor had to keep me alive with this little drink that gave you your nutrients. I was in a bed for three years in unimaginable pain with no recourses. And in 2020, right before COVID hit, I dropped down, my weight dropped drastically down again. I was in severe pain, having trouble staying conscious. My dad ran into my doctor. He just fell apart in her room, weeping, begging for help. She, in a panic, calls around, finds somebody with admitting privileges, and we rush over to UNC Hospital, but my bed wasn't ready, so we had to go to a local hotel. And while we were waiting, my wife, my mom, my sister, my aunt, who had flied in, everybody had flied in. Now, why had they flied in? They had flied in to say goodbye. And while I was in that bed, I told my dad, Dad, I don't think I'm going to make it to the hospital. And he said, I know, son. And he started crying. And then he prayed over me. And he said, you know what, we're just going to go in faith. And he put me in a wheelchair and got me into the car and rushed over to UNC Hospital. And he ran in the front door weeping. And this precious lady grabbed him, hugged him, went and got her director, who got their director. And they pulled some strings and were able to get me a bed. They were able to get me to skip, skip in line so I didn't have to go through the ER. So the guy that comes down, God intervenes, here's my point, God intervenes at the 11th hour. God intervenes at the 11th hour. A guy comes down named Khalil to, to wheel me up to my room, and he's singing worship music. And you know what he's singing? He's singing, if you've tried everything and everything has failed, try my Jesus. He's amazing. He's amazing. Jillian says, the loudest she heard me speak that day was when I whispered to Khalil, please keep singing. They got me up to the room. The nurses say, what's your pain level? Nine out of ten. I hadn't slept for more than two or three hours a night in months. The doctor comes in, looks at the, the, the notes, looks at me and says, Mr. Darville, you're not going to believe this, but your best friend from New York, the guy that led me to the Lord, called me two days ago in a panic begging me to help you. And I told him if you could get, get him here, 
that we would try to help you. I just happened to be the doctor on call in this part of this massive hospital tonight. And I think we're going to be able to get you some help. God intervenes. The nurse that was with me that whole week was a, a precious uh, young lady named Flora. And I thought, if I'm going to die, I'm going to share the gospel with this girl before I go out. So I said, Flora, I gave an 11-minute talk on suffering. Would you go look it up on YouTube and watch it? I'd like for you to see me in a more dignified moment. They're having to transfer me from bed to bed and bathe me like a lion cub because I can't do anything on my own. She says, I promise I'll go listen to it. I tell her the name of it, and she says, well, I've heard that. I said, well, Flora, where did you hear that? She said, I heard that at my church in Durham. I said, what church do you go to? She said, I go to Church of the Good Shepherd. I said, well, Flora, that was me, you know, 70 pounds ago. So God had sent all these believers throughout the week. And I remember on the way to the OR for them to get me on a feeding tube, praying, God, please don't let me wake up. I can't do this anymore. And as we're about to get on the elevator to go to the OR, guess who the last person I saw was? Khalil singing that same worship song. And I just knew that the answer to that prayer was going to be no. So at UNC Hospital, which is a research hospital, they had people from all these different teams come around and observe and try to figure out what was going on, and they figured it out. There was a team of doctors, a lady named Dr. Ann Peary, who figured out that I have a rare pain disorder called chronic functional abdominal pain syndrome, where it's kind of like a military veteran or a military person who comes back and doesn't have a leg. And they have pain in that leg, but where's the pain? They don't have the leg. The pain's in your brain. So they've been looking in my stomach all these years. That wasn't the problem. The pain was the pain control centers in my brain. Anyways, they figured out. They get me on a feeding tube. They bring me back to life. They get me on a therapeutic dose of this medication. And they give us our lives back. I feel like Lazarus with a baby. That, that baby's a miracle, right? But God, he didn't, he didn't, nobody laid their hands on me and prayed and then supernatural. But people have been praying for me for years. And when my dad called my best friend from seminary to tell him that I had requested for him to preach at my funeral, instead he prayed and fasted. And he got other people to pray and fast. And God used doctors to heal me. So whatever your gifts are, Whatever your gifts are, what are they? How do you know what your gifts are? Well, your gifts are the ordinary and extraordinary gifts, capabilities, and strengths that you have that in the power of the Spirit can be used to help people. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be baking, homemaking. You could be an accountant. You could be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. Whatever your gifts are, they can be enhanced by this power of the Spirit and used to glorify God and serve your neighbors, especially your Christian neighbors. As Tom Schreiner points out, if you get involved in the lives of others in your church and love those people as Jesus commanded, then you will discover your gift. Encourage one another. Serve one another. Outdo one another in showing honor and hospitality. And along the way, your gifts will make themselves known. So here's my homework assignment for us in closing. Let's all find a way to encourage or serve someone in the community or part of this body this week. And then let's keep doing it. Because as you serve, your gifts will become apparent to you and to others. And do you know why it's so important that we all lean into serving? Because every one of you in here are an indispensable part of the body of Christ. Every part of the body of Christ is invaluable because Jesus died for every part of the body. Every part of the body is animated by the Spirit of Christ. And every part of the body has an indispensable role to play in God's mission on earth. Let's pray.
Father, you are a good and gracious God. You are the source and standard of everything true and good and beautiful. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And the most precious of all gifts, the most precious of all miracles is the miracle of regeneration by which you send your spirit to take up residence in our hearts and restore us and reconcile us into right relationship to you and begin to renovate things so that we can become more and more and more like your son Jesus. Progressively, we are being fully restored into the image of God. And we do look forward. Even my healing is but a foretaste. It points forward to the day when everything really will be made new. And it is that hope, Lord, that we cherish today. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his great love for us. I pray that we would be reminded today that he is our great Lord and authority. And by his spirit, we are animated and empowered to utilize our gifts to serve the great God who made us and the neighbors around us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.